If you remember, the title of our series in Daniel is The Sovereignty of God. And this is a major, major theme in the book of Daniel. The sovereignty of God. Now, the word sovereignty, we use it a lot as Christians, but sometimes we, don't, we aren't super familiar with what it means. And the word sovereignty comes from a Latin word, super anus, where we get our word super. Uh, and sovereignty, or superinty, the word, the P changed to a V in the process of time, uh, has language corrupt and things like that. The word sovereignty means supremacy. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the supremacy of God. The fact that God is above all other things. The fact that God has power over all other powers. That He rules over all rulers. And anything that has any show of power, God has power over that. He is the sovereign. He is the super one. Our word soprano is actually related to the word sovereignty. The soprano is the one who sings the highest, right? God is the ultimate soprano. He is the one who is above all. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Keep your finger in Daniel if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and you'll see Paul here acknowledging this about God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15. Excuse me, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says this about God. He, starting in the middle of the verse, is the blessed and only sovereign. This is how the New American Standard translates this. He is the blessed, that means happy. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Some Bibles might say potentate, if you have a really old translation, potentate. He is the only one who has power. All other power is something that he has simply delegated and he can take away at any time. There is no one who is sovereign but God alone. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now this phrase was applied to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember in the book of Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar was called the King of kings because God had given him power. God had given him, in a sense, sovereignty. God had exalted him above other kings and other nations, and he could do whatever he wanted with those nations and whatever he wanted with those kings. So in a limited sense, Nebuchadnezzar helps us see what it is like to be God, to be overall, to be a king of kings and lord of lords. But the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar had no power, did he? If he had power, he maybe could resist God. But we'll see in the next chapter, he had no power, he had no ability, Everything he had was from God. God alone is the only sovereign. And for God to be the sovereign one, there's two things that he must have. First of all, he must have existence. We can talk about God being the sovereign one, but if God doesn't even exist, then he's not really the sovereign one at all. So God must exist, and second of all, if he exists, he must actually be in possession of power over all. 
You might have a god, a lesser god, like some of these gods that the pagans worship. They think they exist, but they don't actually possess any power. And this is the contest in the book of Isaiah that God gives to other false gods. He says, if you are gods and if you really exist, if you're really real, then show us that you have power. Do something. Save or destroy. Do good or do evil so that we might see what kind of power that you have. And, of course, God is mocking these false gods and he's mocking all who worship them because they don't exist and therefore they have no power. And God over and over and over again confirms the fact that he only is God, that he only exists of all the mentioned gods of this world, that he alone is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is, and that he is sovereign. And God wants us to acknowledge this. God wants the whole world to acknowledge that he is and that he rules in power. Do you acknowledge that this morning? Do you acknowledge that God exists and that he is sovereign over all things. As Christians, we have described God's power with this word omnipotence. Omnipotence means God has all power. You realize if God wanted to, God could take the periodic, the elements of the periodic table. First, we created the table, but he created all the elements of the table, right? And if God wanted to, he could, just by thinking it, mix up all the elements and make all the elements do different things. If he wanted to, right? So iron wouldn't operate like iron anymore. It would operate like sodium or helium. (laughs) And he would just, all all of a sudden, just with his thought, I'm going to change it up today. And it all changes. And the world would just go crazy. It'd be an absolute mess, right? God has power over nature and all of the elements that he created, and they are what they are because of him. They only have ability to do what they do because God has given them the ability to do what they do. This is what you are are permitted by God to do, iron. This is what you are permitted by God to do. You name the element. And no more. Because God hasn't allowed them to do any more. And he could take it away at any time. If God wanted to, he could take Mount Everest and flip it upside down and spin it like a ladle if he wanted to. Jesus said that mountains could be removed by God, right? God upholds all things by the word of his power. And Mount Everest is nothing to God. Of course, it's pretty hard for human beings to climb that mountain, right? But God can just spin it on its top. Or if God wanted to, he could... could with one scoop of his hand, he could pick up the Pacific Ocean, or all the oceans for that matter, and dump it on another planet, or dump it over some nation and drown the whole world. Nothing is too difficult for God. The Bible says that the nations are like the drop in the bucket, and that he measures the waters in the hollow of his hands. When you think about God, do you think of, yeah, God exists, but he's this wimpy, powerless God out there somewhere who who can't really have power over nature, right? Look at Jesus. He gets up in the boat. He just woke up. How many of you could do this when you just wake up? (laughs) Most of us can't even find our way around the house. He just says, peace be still to the wind and the waves, and they just stop instantly, don't they? That's how powerful God is. And even the disciples 
marveled when they saw Jesus say that. And though God does these miraculous things from time to time, he's usually not so direct, is he? Certainly God does stunning direct miracles like that from time to time, but he often works behind the scenes and uses means and tests our faith in him to see if we truly believe his word, if he is the ruler over nature and nations and men. You know, not one of us, not a single one of us in this room, and not a single one of the almost 7 billion people in this world have life except for the fact that it is the will of God. Right? At any time, God could just think it and your life would be over. God could, of course, directly take you away. Miraculously, you just disappear. Of course, God has a million other ways that he can dispose of you. God has a million assassins that he could use to kill any number of people on this earth at any time that he wanted. We have our lives because of the will of God. God is in total control of your life. You don't have the power to, to, to get, escape his will. You can't just say, if I'm going to die, it's going to be on my time, right? God's not taking me out today. I get to decide when my time ends. No, you don't. And you can do all that you want to avoid it and God finds the way because he has all power. Do you believe that? It humbles you. It's meant to humble you. The reason we're not humble is because we think we have power independent from God. We think that we can escape his will, but the Bible says no one has ever resisted God's will. Now this would be extremely scary if God was a bad God, right? If God has all power and he's sovereign and he was a bad, evil, cruel God, that would be terrifying for us all. But the good news, the Bible says, is that God is a good God. And all that power that he has is guided by his righteousness. And God is righteous and everything that he does, he does in truth and goodness and righteousness. However, that's still scary. Right? And we're not to think that, oh good, God's not a cruel God. The God with all the power is a good God. That means there's nothing to be afraid of. If you've read the Bible, you know that that's false. Because you have no, nothing to fear that God will be cruel, but you do need to fear that God will be just. And brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us, and we all know this about ourselves, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the standard that God requires of us. And that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That we all deserve destruction. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve God's wrath. And the Bible speaks about this. And so the Bible doesn't enable us to not fear God. It doesn't say, no, you don't have to fear God anymore. You're to fear God, but for a different reason. You're to fear God not because he's a tyrant and he's cruel, but you're to fear God like a criminal fears a policeman because God is just. And you deserve his wrath and he has wrath for you. But if he has wrath for you and you're clearly guilty and he has all power to take you out at any time, why are you not dead? And the Bible tells us 
The reason why you are not dead right now isn't because you're a good person. Isn't because God thinks you don't deserve to die right now. The only reason you're not dead is because, what does the Bible say? Of his patience and his forbearance of you. That's right. So we live in the mercy of God if we live. God is a just judge who takes his job seriously. Of course, it's not even his job, is it? It is his nature. We also speak of God being omniscient. That means God is all-knowing, all-wise, which means that nothing that God does is capricious or pointless. Everything that God does has a purpose. God is in control of all things. God does all things for a good reason because he is all-wise. And therefore, whatever God does, he does so that we might interpret it, so that we might ask, why did God do this this way? Just like I asked a moment ago, okay, God is all-powerful and in control of all things, why am I therefore still alive? Interpretation? God's patience. God does all his acts in wisdom so that we may reflect on them and ask why. This is what the book of Daniel is all about. And Daniel wants us to reflect upon God's actions in the stories of Daniel, in the prophecies of Daniel, and to see what God is doing and to ask why God is doing that. That's what the book of Daniel wants us to do. That's what the whole Bible wants us to do. And that's what this chapter is calling for us to do as well. And we're going to do that this morning. Chapter 3 is an event which shows us that God is there, that he exists, that he is powerful and in control, and it is there for us to reflect upon why did God do what he did. And so that's what we'll do this morning. Now look at chapter 1, or sorry, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1 of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's been busy, right? Nebuchadnezzar's been busy and he's making an image of gold, a giant image of gold. And it's, as we can see in this chapter, it is undoubtedly for a religious, idolatrous reason. This is a religious statue. This isn't just a secular project. And... We might ask, well, if he's doing this for a religious and idolatrous reason, didn't he learn something in the last chapter? You know, what's, what's this about? It, wasn't it in chapter 2 that he acknowledged that God was God when Daniel interpreted his dream? What happened to him? It's too hasty of a conclusion, brothers and sisters, to think that Nebuchadnezzar in the last chapter uh, was converted from paganism to the worship of the true God, Right? After Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which last week we talked about, um, as, I, as I argued, the dream was about the, the absence of the Davidic rule and the coming Davidic rule through Jesus Christ. After Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel to a high place of authority in Babylon. He honors Daniel's God, but he's evidently still a pagan. And look at verse 47. This is the only words of Nebuchadnezzar after the dream is interpreted. And notice what he says carefully, because this is all he says. Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries 
since you have been able to reveal this mystery. There's not any sense of monotheism in that statement. Your God is a God of gods. He's great. He's acknowledging your God is powerful. Your God can reveal mysteries when other gods can't. That's, that's wonderful. But it falls short of true conversion to the true faith in God. Joyce Baldwin writes, as a polytheist, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was, he can always add another god to the deities he worshipped. So Nebuchadnezzar just adds Yahweh to his, his um, pantheon. And even if Nebuchadnezzar was greatly affected by this event in chapter 2, time takes its toll if you are not refreshing your mind. Amen? How many of you know that by experience? How many of you have had powerful experiences with God and in a little bit of time, if you don't refresh and remember, they just kind of slink away into the past and don't affect you anymore, right? Yes, and it doesn't take long. Consider Pharaoh, (laughs) right? Pharaoh sees God doing all these amazing things. Wow, God has power over Egypt, and yet he continually says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. So if Pharaoh can do it, certainly Nebuchadnezzar can also do the same and forget what God has done. Also, we need to consider that Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 43 years in Babylon. And chapter 3 is not dated in any way. So we don't know in what part of this rule of Nebuchadnezzar's did the event of chapter 3 take place. We shouldn't assume that it was right after chapter 2. It could have been years later. And there are two theories as to when this happened. Here's the first theory. Uh, Scholars posit that the event of chapter 3 took place in the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar, which would be roughly 10 years after the event of chapter 2. 10 years uh, at the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar, there was a revolt in his army, and Nebuchadnezzar suppressed that revolt in the 10th year of his reign. And so scholars say, well, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is here seeking to strengthen and unify his empire after that revolt. Possibly. The second theory is that, it, that scholars often posit is that chapter 3 does follow right on the heels of chapter 2 and that Nebuchadnezzar gets his inspiration for the image from his dream. So he sees a, dr- a dream of the image and he wakes up and says, I'm going to make this, except I'm going to make it all of gold. <laughs> right? Because gold signifies his reign. Either interpretations are possible But what they both have in common is that Nebuchadnezzar is here seeking to strengthen his empire and he's using religion to do it. Wallace Emerson writes, We must not suppose that a man of his largeness of mind and tenacity of purpose had given up his hope for a universal kingdom, if not for eternity, then for whatever length of time might be ordained of the gods. So just because Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and knows his kingdom's coming to an end doesn't mean he's going to give it up lightly. The image, it says in verse 1, was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. If you translate that to feet, the image was about 90 feet tall. The Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was 100 feet tall. So this is actually... Uh, very similar to the Colossus of Rhodes. It's interesting that there is a French archaeologist who uh, 
argues that he has even found the plain of Dura and the base of this, where the statue sat. So even archaeology finds um, a place where a big statue might have, might have sat in the plain of Dura. This is not a statue of himself. Babylonian rulers did not deify themselves. They didn't think that they were gods. This was a statue of his god or his gods, probably the chief of his gods, probably Marduk, the god that he was so uh, he devoutly worshipped. And Nebuchadnezzar was a devout worshipper of Marduk. Verse 2 and 3. He calls together all of his officials who govern his province, who govern in his provinces and they represent um, all of his realm which is basically most of the world at that time as you see in verse 4 they call out the commands given to peoples nations and men of every language so here in these officials is is represented his realm one common question is where is Daniel in all this the simple answer is we don't know where Daniel is in all this. We can take a guess, though, and the best guess is that he was away on some business. And that's satisfactory to the question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there because they were officials in Babylon. If you remember in chapter 2, after Daniel was promoted, he said, hey, can you promote these guys too to a government position? And they became officials in the Babylonian Empire. The scholar William Shea actually argues that he has found Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's names on the roster of an ancient Babylonian text that lists government officials at that time. It's quite fascinating, actually. There their names are on the roster. It's pretty amazing. In verse 5, you see that Nebuchadnezzar has called forth a full orchestra filled with exotic instruments. This orchestra shows what a big fanfare this event was. The orchestra's there, and there's a lot of repetition also in this chapter, isn't there? It lists multiple times the officials' names or the titles. It lists multiple times the instruments. The impression we received is that this is a big thing. This is a big fanfare. Everyone's there who's anybody, really. And look what Nebuchadnezzar says to them. The herald announces, To you the command is given. When you hear all this music, you are to bow down and worship this statue. And in verse 6, if they do not worship, they will die. So, they don't really have a lot of choice in the matter here, right? You have to bow down and worship And if you don't, you will die. You'll be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And if anyone thinks that that's an odd way to die, it's well known that the Babylonians would do that. Even in extra-biblical Babylonian texts, they would say that you'll be punished by being thrown into a furnace of fire. In Jeremiah 29.22, Jeremiah tells us that Nebuchadnezzar already threw two Jews into a furnace of burning fire and they, they perished. And so the Babylonians really did this. What's going on here is that religion is being used as a means to an end. Religion is being used to strengthen the empire. And that is what people do when they don't really know 
the one true God. When you have a faith in divinity or in God that isn't the one true God, and since there is no other God but Yahweh, when you put your faith in any other God, you're putting your faith in a God that doesn't exist and has no power to do anything, right? Any other God doesn't do anything. And so, what else are gods good for than using them as means to your own ends? This is what inevitably happens with people even today who don't know God. People are religious, but religion basically is reduced to just being a supplement to their life, making their life better. How many times have you heard someone say, I think religion is good for the world, it just makes you a better person, it just helps your family function better and makes everybody happy. It's not that God is the end. It's not that God is to be worshipped because he exists and he's real and he's powerful and he is worthy of our praise. You just have this concept of divinity that really has no substance to it and you just use it as a means to make your life better, to make your family better, to make your empire better. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Religion is used as a means to an end when the gods that you believe in do not do anything and do not exist. The true God is the living God who is worthy of our praise. And brothers and sisters, let's just settle this in our hearts, that God is to be worshipped as an end. That he is not a means to an end. But the end of all things is the glory of God. Amen? It's even difficult sometimes for us to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? Because we tend to live our lives with our eyes down here, just, you know, what's going to help me, what's going to benefit me here. But the end of all things truly is the glory of the God who is worthy of all glory. And for those who know God, that is a good thing, isn't it? If you don't know God, that's like, what? The end of all things is the glory of God? That's boring, that's stupid, that's pointless, right? But you only say that if you think that gods are actually not really real. But if you know God and who he is, that should thrill your soul that the end of all things is his glory. Because you know that's right. You know that's good. And you know he is worthy of that praise. So what happens in verse 7? We have a therefore, right? If you don't bow down and worship the idol, see that fire over there, see that furnace? You'll be thrown into it immediately. Verse 7, Therefore, in the light of this information, all the peoples, all the nations, all the officials obeyed at once when they heard that music. They dropped to their knees, fell on their face, and started worshipping this piece of wood. And gold. The emphasis in verse 7 is on all of them. All the representatives of all those nations, of all the realms of Babylon, they couldn't see any reason not to bow down and worship that image. Because they don't know God. All they know is, got to preserve my skin here. I'm the end. This worship religion thing is not the end. I'm the end here. And they fall down and worship and do the very thing that God mocks in the book of Isaiah, bowing down before a piece of wood or gold that cannot do anything. 
there's only in the midst of this crowd, there's only three people who refuse to bow down and worship this image. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that these three are the three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 8, when everyone drops to their knees except for those three, the people around them don't like that. And they head to Nebuchadnezzar, and it literally in the Aramaic, there's an idiom here, which is very similar to our English idiom. They came and they chewed them out. That's the idiom in verse 8. When it says they brought charges against the Jews, literally they chewed them out. They came and they were mad and they chewed out the Jews. In verse 8. And they announced to Nebuchadnezzar what his command was. And then in verse 12, they say, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. And that's true. There's nothing untrue in what they have reported. They're not coming with a, with a false witness. They're not coming and trying to trick Nebuchadnezzar to burn these guys. They're coming with a true charge. Unlike everyone else, these men have disregarded the commandment. And that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? There's a blazing fire there, and they met, these men know that. They know that if they disregard this commandment, they're going to be burned. And yet they choose to disregard the fire, disregard the command, disregard the fanfare, disregard uh, the moment with all of its uh, glamour and power, uh, you know, uh, uh, ostensible power of mankind, and they disregard it and say, no, I don't care about the fire, don't care about the music, don't care about the king, this is wrong, we will not bow. Our lives are not the end. If we die, so be it. Because the most important thing here is not us saving our measly little skin. The most important thing here is me giving glory to God. So they paid no attention to that fire. Why? What made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego different than... Everybody else, all peoples, all nations, all, everybody represented there. All these smart officials. What made them different? Was it because they had stronger personalities? Was it because they had courage genes or piety genes? And I know I've said this many times over, but I'm going to hammer on this because it's so important that we understand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, uh, didn't, they didn't do what they they didn't do what they did because they were stronger, because they were just constitutionally better, because, well, God just made them different. The only difference between them and everyone else was faith. That's the only difference. Do you believe that? That that's the only difference is faith? That it's not because they just had stronger will or they were just better people? They were just good somehow? It's faith. And only faith. Because they were Jews who, unlike everyone else there, had the scriptures and had believed the scriptures and trusted in God. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 34 makes it very clear that this is a matter of faith. In the, in the book of Hebrews when it talks about the uh, hall of faith and all the people from the Old Testament who did things because of faith, it includes these men and their deed there. 
They knew God was in control. They knew that God had not been defeated by Babylon's gods just because Israel had been conquered, right? They knew that God would ultimately prevail. They knew that God ruled in the heavens and that God was simply giving Babylon its power. God would take it away. That there was no reason whatsoever for them to bow down to the gods of Babylon because they weren't real. God was in control. And compared to God, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing. Babylon is nothing. It was their faith in God and the scriptures only that made them stand. And it is only faith that would ever make anyone stand, including ourselves. You want to have more strength of will? You want to have more strength to stand against the tide of the world when the world is going one way and there's a lot of pressure to go that way? Do you want to know how to stand in those days when your life is on the line? Have you ever, you know, often, we often think about what would happen if I was in that situation, right? Would I stand? Would I go to the fire? Would I brave the firing squad or the decapitator? Well, the key is not you better find some strength within yourself to stand on those days. The key is whom do you believe in? Right? Whom do you believe in? you believe in God? Or do you believe in some concept of divinity that's not real at all? Who do you trust in? That's the only difference. It is our faith that gets us into trouble and it is our faith that gets us out of it. Amen? <laughs> you want to get in trouble as a Christian? <laughs> Just live by faith. And you want to be, get out of those troubles? It's also faith that will get you out of those troubles. God will deliver you, maybe not physically, but you will be delivered from all trials because of faith as well. Verse 13, when Nebuchadnezzar hears about these three Jews, he hasn't conversed with them yet, but he's angry. At this point, he doesn't understand why they're not worshipping the statue. For, for all he knows, it's just treason. He doesn't know that it's because they're believing in God. He's just angry to hear that these people aren't bowing down. So he calls them forward, uh, calls them to himself. And in verse 14 and 15, he gives them a second chance. Because, you know, maybe there's some misinformation here. And that's the sense here in verse 14, where he says, is it true? He wants to know if it's true. I'm going to give you a second chance, because... Maybe it's not true. Let's confirm this. This is odd. People don't usually do this. I don't know of anyone who would ever do this. Are you rebels? Is it true? And he says, okay, you'll get a second chance here. We'll let the orchestra play just for you. And when the orchestra plays, if you bow down and worship the statue, all will be well. But if you do not worship, look at the end of verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar now makes a startling statement. If you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Yes, that's what he said before. And then he says this. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Isn't that a, a fascinating statement. The, the Aramaic is emphatic on this point. What at all God is there? There's no God that can deliver you. 
I don't know of any. I'm the king. I know a lot. There is no God who can deliver you out of my hands. This is a fascinating statement for here Nebuchadnezzar is announcing that he has power over the gods. If I want you to be destroyed, there's not any god that can stop me. Even the gods don't have power over me. I have power. I have real substantial power. I can do with what with you what I want. You're in my hand. No one can stop me. Not even the gods. I must say, what a low view of the gods, right? Now, this is a devout man. This is a devout, this is not an atheist. This is a devout worshiper of a whole pantheon of gods, and he has a low view of them all because none of them exist. And none of them can do anything, and he knows it. An incredibly insightful statement, isn't it? Just like last chapter when the priests the professional religionists were being asked to do something supernatural to confirm that they had access to the gods, which they claimed, and they said, this is impossible. There's no gods. Well, the gods can help us, but they're not not here. We believe in them, but they don't do anything, right? Just like in the last chapter, we find that in crisis, people who claim to believe in God, but who don't truly know the one true God, that faith in God is virtually useless. When it comes to making decisions, uh, they make decisions that have nothing to do with God. Isn't that amazing? Ask yourself, in your own life, you believe in God, does your faith in God, the true God, the living God, the God who actually does things, does that affect your decision making? Do you actually make decisions based upon God being real and powerful? Or do you have this faith in God that virtually is useless and means nothing. You just use it as a means to your end, but God doesn't actually do anything. Many people have faith like that. And what, in essence, this is called, what they are, are practical atheists. Practical atheists. This is a term that's been used for centuries uh, amongst Christians. Practical atheism is not when you have true faith in God, but you don't have obedience. Like, I really do believe in the one true God. I I just haven't chosen to obey Him. That's not what we mean by practical atheism. What we mean by practical atheism is you have a faith in God that is meaningless. Because the object of your faith, the object of your faith is no God. So you profess to be a believer in God. You have some kind of faith in God. But because the object of your faith, because your God is no God, it means you live like an atheist. You live like there isn't a God. That's what practical atheism is. You're a professed theist. You live like an atheist. Not because you don't have strength to obey, but because your God is too small. As J.B. Phillips said it best in the title of one of his books, your God is too small. The Bible doesn't say it's It's all fine and dandy if you believe in God. You've got to believe in the one true God. Your God is too small. Nebuchadnezzar's gods were too small and therefore he was a practical atheist when it came to this matter. No God can deliver you. You're mine. Can you imagine the 
intensity of this moment when he says that to them. The fire is raging. He says before them, no one can deliver you out of my hand. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now about to explain why they disregard his commandment. And they're about to explain to him the one true God. Verse 16, as they're opening their mouth, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar would be shocked to see their calmness. I get the impression of them being rather calm here. Because he, would th- he, he by experience knows that anyone in this circumstance would cower and recant. Right? Anyone would recant. Is it true? Here's the fire, you're going to die. And he knows, people say, okay, I take it back, or it wasn't me, I'm going to make a defense of myself. No, they misheard. They misheard, you see. My, my knees are bad today, you know, I can't get on the ground. That's, that's the problem. I'll, I'll do it now, though. Right? <laughs> They'd come up with some defense and they'd recant. But instead, he finds them full of courage. And I'm sure he's thinking, what's up with these guys? These guys are different. This is different. I've never seen people like this before. Who act like this. In this kind of a situation. And in verse 16, they say to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. What that means is we don't need to defend ourselves. It is true. That was the question. Is it true that you're not bowing down? And they say, yeah, we don't need to uh, come up with an alibi. It's true. And in verse 17 and 18, we have this amazing, amazing confession. The Hebrew is a, is a little complicated, And I'd like to just draw our attention to the structure of these two verses. And the the difficulty here is that some of our Bibles might translate it a little bit differently. But here's the sense. Verse 17 begins with this expression, if it be, and verse 18 begins, if it be not. Right? If it be is verse 17, how that begins. And verse 18 is, but if it be not. Some translations will put some italicized words in there to try to make sense of this. But here's what they're saying. They're not saying, if what you are saying be so, that you're going to throw us in the fire, God will deliver us. It's already so what he said. He's going to throw them in the fire if they don't bow down. So they're not saying, well, if that's true, what you're saying, that's not the sense of the Hebrew. Nor is it, as some, as some commentators write, some actually think, if God exists, in verse 17. If God exists, he'll deliver us. Meaning, if he exists, that means we're going to be delivered. If he doesn't exist, we still won't bow down to you. That's how some commentators take this. But that's, I believe, um, not at all what the Hebrew is saying. First of all, if God exists, there's no guarantee he'll deliver. And second of all, if he doesn't exist, why don't you bow down to the statue, Right? It just is a false piety at that point. Uh, Modern kind of existentialism. I don't care if it's real or not, I'm not going to give in. (laughs) I'm going to be true to my principles. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But rather the sense here is, if it be determined by God, if it is God's will, he will 
deliver us. And if it is not God's will to deliver us, even so, we will not bow down. Jerome, the 4th century commentator, writes, they indicate that it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather of his sovereign will if they do perish. If we perish, it's not because God doesn't exist and he's not powerful. It was, it was not to be. But if it is to be, God will deliver us. That's the explanation of how in verse 17 there's this statement of certainty. He will deliver us. How'd they know that? Because they qualified it by saying, if it be, if this be a solid thing, He will. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know if God would or not at this point. But they know that God could and they know they knew that God would if he determined it to be so, if it was his will. And so they could say that to the king. King, if God wants to save us, he will. Because he can. Stephen Miller writes, although no doubt existed in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about the ability of their God to deliver them, they humbly accepted the fact that God does not always choose to intervene miraculously in human circumstances, even on the behalf of his servants. They're not standing there and saying, yes, he's going to do it, period, matter-of-factly. They, they have this, this possibility that it won't be, that they won't be saved. And they affirm to Nebuchadnezzar, even if we die, God is worthy of our praise. And you don't have the last word. God does. If God had promised to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he would deliver them from this fire, then they could have known, then they would have known at that moment, because God said, you will not burn in that furnace, they would say, okay, we're not going to burn, Nebuchadnezzar. He, he can save us, he will, because he promised. But in the absence of any explicit promise of God, they didn't know. This is how it is for us as well, isn't it? Because we do not always have certain promises from God that he will deliver us from all trials, dangers, circumstances, do we? So that you can't get in the car and say, I know for a fact, because God can, obviously God can keep me safe in this car, I know that he will, right? Because he promised me that he will. Well, if he promised you, then you can do that. But how many of you have, ha- have a promise from God like that? I'm not saying he can't, okay? But for most of us, we don't have a promise that we're going to make it home after we leave church, right? And so we know that he can keep us safe, and so we turn to him, and we look to him, and we say, God, I commit my way to you, because I know you are in control, you are powerful, you can keep me, everything isn't just happenstance, I don't know what your will is, but I ask you to keep me safe. But in the absence of that promise, we don't know. However, we all do have the promise that God will deliver us from the great danger. Amen? So I might not know that he's going to keep me safe in the car. But I can know for sure that God will keep me safe 
my, will keep safe my eternal soul. Because God has promised that whoever puts their faith in Christ will not perish and will not be destroyed and be ashamed. Amen? So we can with certainty face eternity. We can with certainty face judgment day and say, the fires of hell will not harm me. And I know this because God can deliver me and he's promised to do so through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the promise that we have in Christ. And here's another promise that we can bank on. That in all of our trials, God will be with us. Amen? So even if I get hit in a car, in a, in a car wreck after this ser- service, I still have the promise that God will be with me. That God loves me, that God's in control, and that he hasn't forsaken me. So here's the way we live our lives, right? We have promises from God that we believe and we make our decisions based on them. We have hope based on them. We have certainty based on them. And then in everything else, knowing God is in control, knowing God can save us from all harm, we just don't know if he will, if it will be or if it will not be. But we still look to him and put our trust in him. And so Theodore Klefoth says this about their statement. Without fanaticism, they only say, let God do according to his own will. Without superstition, they commit their deliverance to God. We are not called to be superstitious people. We are not called to be fanatics. We are called to be people who trust in the promises of God and in the power of God. And that means, not being superstitious means... If I walk around the car three times, God will preserve me when I drive home. If I sing hymns the whole way, God will preserve me when I drive home. Right? If I wasn't mad at that person, then God would have preserved me. when I, That's all superstition. God is in control and he loves you and he won't forsake you and you're getting in the car trusting in him. Not manipulating him with your magic charms. If it will be, it will be, and if it will not be, it will not be. And we put our hands in the hands of God and give Him glory. Our attitude should be like theirs when we face trials. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to this? Does he say, that is marvelous? (laughs) (laughs) See, to Nebuchadnezzar, this is lunacy. He doesn't know the God that they speak of. He doesn't believe in the God that they speak of. He doesn't know that there's any God who's real and powerful like this. So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar's face changes. He was angry before. Now he's so angry he can't even uh, control the look on his face. Sometimes you can fake it. He can't even fake it now. He's so mad. He's mad because he doesn't like this idea that he isn't in control. Right? And now it's showdown time, you see. Oh, no God can deliver me, no God can deliver you out of my hands. Oh yeah? Yes, God can. And he says, now he's upset because his power is now being exposed to be nothing at all. That's what they're saying. Actually, if God doesn't want you to burn us, you won't. You can't. Everything is in God's hand, Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing is really in your hand at all. Oh, he doesn't like that. And you can see that it's showdown time because now he's going to ensure success. He heats the furnace up seven times hotter, which is probably just an, 
and Hebraism or Aramaism saying, super hot. The sovereignty of the flames. To ensure survival, he chooses his crack troops. Verse 20, his elite troops. He doesn't just grab, get rid of, you know, you guys aren't good enough soldiers. Get these soldiers, throw these guys into the furnace. Tie them up and throw them in. Fighting against God only hurts yourself, doesn't it? His crack troops died. That was a good plan. And he throws them in, into the blazing furnace. Instant death for anyone in any natural kind of way, right? In any common kind of way, they're dead. Nebuchadnezzar did everything he could to make sure that they would die. And they didn't. Amazing. Imagine the shock in verse 24 of Nebuchadnezzar, and and it's communicated in this verse in that he's astounded and he shoots up out of his seat. Have you ever done that? You ever been so surprised you just shoot up out of your seat? Nebuchadnezzar shoots up out of his seat and he asks his officials, how many guys did we throw in there? Tell me if I'm mistaken here. Three. We tied them up, right? Yes. We tied up three guys? We didn't throw any shiny guys in, right? No. (laughs) And his shock as he looks into that furnace and he sees four men not bound and one of them bears the appearance of the Son of the Gods. That doesn't necessarily mean it's Christ. That's a pagan saying, this guy looks like divinity. must have been very enjoyable for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at that moment, right? Imagine what they're thinking. Hey, we're in the fire and we're not dead. And they're walking about, it says. In verse 25, they're loosed and walking about. They weren't just standing still. They were walking around. They were looking at the inside of the furnace. They are saying, this is amazing. This is awesome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally experienced Isaiah 43, verse 2. When God promised, when you, walk, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Now, they, they experienced that literally. I think this is a figurative statement, but they experienced this literally. And they came out of that fire. Not only did they survive, and they were kind of laying on the ground, charred and... I'm still alive, you didn't get me, you know. (laughs) But not even their clothes were burned, not even their hair was singed. Imagine. And you couldn't even smell the fire on them. You couldn't even smell it. It was like the fire in them had absolutely nothing to do with one another. Right? Literally, the, the Aramaic says, the fire had no power. That's what it says. The fire, he messed up the periodic table. The fire had no power because the power that the fire has from God and he took it away. God is sovereign over nature. Why did God save them this way? He has a million other ways he could have saved them, right? He has a million other things that he could have done. He could have done it in a far more seemingly natural way. 
But God wanted a witness in Babylon. He wanted to win this contest. If you are God's, do something. Convince us. And God wanted to show Nebuchadnezzar who was boss. For Nebuchadnezzar says in verse, 20, in verse 15, no God can deliver. In verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say God can deliver and will if it's his will. And in verse 29, the end result here is Nebuchadnezzar announcing at the end of verse 29, there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. No other God. God has proven himself. Now, in closing, this action of God teaches us two things, at least. Many other things, I'm sure. But I'll just point out two things. First of all, this action of God proves that Israel was not defeated by the Babylonians because the Babylonian gods were greater than than the God of Israel. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else thought. Nebuchadnezzar took all the gold and precious things out of the temple and he's probably thinking, look at me. I'm even walking in the house of their God, taking all this stuff. This God, he's defeated. Right? Takes the stuff and puts it in his own God to honor his God. This proves that that was not at all the case and it proves verse 1 and 2 of Daniel 1, God delivered Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And why did he do that? Not because God was absent, not because God was weak, but because God was keeping his covenant. Plain and simple. Because God is in control and God is faithful to the covenant that he made. Israel had sinned. God's patience he took away and he punished them as he promised that he would. It's another promise you can bank on. He will punish the sinner. The second thing that this teaches us or encourages us in, is that God, this would encourage and teach Israel, the nation in exile, that God was still with them, that God loves them, and even when they're in judgment and exile because of their sins, He will never abandon them, and He will never let them ultimately be destroyed. No matter what Israel goes through, He will be with them and will bring them forth alive. The figurative sense of Isaiah 43, verse 2. When they pass through the waters, when they pass through the fires, God will protect them. This is an encouragement for all of God's people that God is with them. And this is an encouragement for the righteous that when God allows the wicked to slay you, when God allows the wicked to persecute you, when the wicked rise up against the righteous, when those who don't know God rise up against those who put their trust in God and seek to slay them, that God is with you. And God is with us. And it's not a sign that, he's in the, that he has abandoned you at all. And he'll keep you. I believe that this event is typical of another event that the Bible prophesies of. This is a type of that event that the Bible prophesies of when, as I believe, in the future, the entire world, every tongue, nation, and language, will be forced under penalty of death 
to unite under one kind of idolatrous worship. Not the worship of a statue of 60 cubits in six dimensions, but as the Bible teaches us, a man and an image whose name is signified by a number similar 666. And at that time, it will not be strength of personality, courage genes, and piety genes that is going to get you through. At that time, just like as it, it has always been for God's people who are persecuted, and as it will be for you in between until that time, it is faith in God and in His Word that will strengthen you and get you through. And that is what His, that's the difference between God's people and not God's people, is God's people know Him and believe in Him. And God's people that don't, don't believe in Him. And crisis reveals who believes and who doesn't. But what an encouragement we have here, knowing that God is totally in control when all of that stuff happens, and when any persecution happens, or any trials, or any car accidents, or anything that we go through, God is powerful and sovereign and in control, and he's with us until the end of the age, as Jesus said. And then the Bible tells us that Christ will return, and in a direct, miraculous manner, he'll deliver God's people from all danger including his own wrath and his own judgment. On that day, not just the Babylonian king and his officials, but all the earth will give glory to God. So brothers and sisters, our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only sovereign, he alone has all power and rules in the heavens over all things according to his will. Amen? And we can trust in him in all circumstances. And I'd like to encourage you with that today. To trust in God in all of your circumstances and also to trust in his promise that he has given concerning our greatest need, our salvation. Trust in him. You can know that he can save you and that he will. Let us have faith, not in a small God, not in a low, little view of God, and be practical atheists. But let us see God as he truly is and be strengthened with hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself and showing us through your actions that you're in control and that you are sovereign. May you encourage us all this morning with this truth. May you expand our vision of who you are. May we see that you are in control. Keep us from superstition. Give us the peace that comes from resting under the shadow of your wing. And thank you most of all, our God, for the great promise we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we can know for sure that even if they destroy the body, we have eternal life. We thank you for all of these wonderful things, and we worship you, Lord, and give you thanks, and we pray that you would always be the end and not just a means to an end, because you are truly worthy. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.